We're going to continue our series, a Christian Atheist series, and today we're going to talk about, uh, I believe in God, but I trust more in money. I believe in God, and I trust more and more in money. And I've got to tell you something, that when, when the, the Christian Atheist book came out, uh, and I read that, there were several chapters in there that really spoke directly to me, and I've been telling you this every week, if you've been coming here for the last several weeks, I've been telling you that... Um, you know, uh, as you go through this, this series, there'll be some weeks that you'll sit here and you think, ah, oh, it doesn't really apply to me, but, but there's going to be a week or two or three or four where you come here and what we talk about really hits home with you. And when I read that book, this was the chapter out of all of them, that several of them hit home with me, but this was the one that hit home with me the most. I believe in God, but I trust more in money. And it hit home with me in two different areas of my life. One is personally. Uh, I would love to be able to stand up before you today and tell you that I don't ever worry about money. I'd love to be able to stand up before you today and say that I don't think sometimes that if I was just extravagantly wealthy that all my problems would be solved. I'd love to be able to stand up before you today and say that I don't ever compare my standard of living with the standard of living of people around me who seem to have more than me. But if I told you any of those things, I would be lying to you. Because in every one of those cases, I struggle with this issue of money. I want more of it. I think I need more of it. I think more of it will make me happy. And then the other issue that I struggle with in, in regards to money and trusting more in money than I do in God is, uh, is professionally. See, I'm a pastor of a church, and whether you know it or not, this church functions and runs on what the people who come here give, and that's the way God intended it for it to be. God, God wants the people of the church to finance the church, to finance the ministries. If we're going to do Halloween hoopla, it's going to be whether or not people put enough money in those buckets that go around. If we're going to help start new churches in Africa, which is what we're doing, it, it depends on whether or not we put enough money in those buckets. And if I'm going to get paid or not, let's just get totally honest here, it also has to do with how much money is put in those buckets that we pass around. So professionally, I struggle with this same thing as well because I'll worry, I'll worry about how much is given and, and all that kind of stuff. Now, now, here's the thing. I want you to know today that every week I look and see how much was given, every Monday. And every, at the end of every month, I look and see what the check balance is and all that kind of stuff. But one thing I don't do, and I want you to hear this now, all right, because if you miss this, you're going to go out of here and tell some false information. I don't know what any of you give. I've never once, I don't know if you give a dime or if you give $10,000 a week. I've never looked at what anybody gives. Now, we've got other people that look at what people give so that if we're going to ask folks to be elders and different things like that, someone is looking at the giving. But I don't look at it. And here's why I don't. Because if you get mad and want to leave this church... I don't want to know if, if you give a lot of money or not, so I won't be tempted to beg you to stay, right? Because if you're a big giver and you want to leave, I might be like, oh, no, please, we'll change it all. We won't even do music anymore, you know, because I know you were offended by that OJ song we did Sunday, so we won't even do that anymore, right? But, so I, I don't look at that kind of stuff, but I still struggle with it. But here's what, I, here's what I know. By looking at what's given, and now I'm about to get personal, I'm about to step on your toes, but just hang with me. By looking at what is given... I know that most of you struggle with this same issue like I do. 
By looking at what's given, I know that for many of you, you trust more in money than you do in God, just like I do sometimes. And you say, wait a minute, Cliff, you don't look at what we give. But hey, even though I was remedial in math, even I can look at the total number given and then look at the number of adults that were there on that Sunday and do the division and figure out how much it is per person. I'm not that stupid, right? And so when I look at that and I realize, wow, most of our people are either living below the poverty line or they're not giving 10% like the Bible teaches. I know that you struggle with this same thing just like I do. There's an old joke that, um, that preachers tell. Um, there's all these preacher jokes. If you ever get around a group of preachers, um, you don't want to listen to the jokes they'll tell you in public. But now, if they don't know you're around, they tell some pretty good jokes if they know nobody else is listening. But, uh, but one of the, the public preacher jokes that they used to tell is, is that when people get baptized, that, uh, that they get saved, they get baptized, most people hold their wallet up out of the water as they go under the water, right? It's because we're giving my whole life, but I'm going to hold this wallet up. It's not going to get wet, and I'm not going to give it to Jesus, right? And that's kind of the way we live our lives. I think one of the most ironic things in the world for us as Americans is that on every piece of currency that we have, you got dollar bills in your pocket, you got change in your pocket, on every one of them it says, in God we trust. That is the most ironic thing ever. Because even for those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus, if we were honest with ourselves, we would really admit that really it's more in money we trust and not in God we trust. And so we all are struggling with this issue, I think, if we're honest. There's a great uh, quote in the Christian Atheist book that Craig Groeschel wrote that I wanted to share with you. And if you've already read this chapter, you've read it. But it, he said this, When the stakes are low... It's easy to trust God, but when the stakes are high, we want to trust money. When the stakes are low, it's easy to trust God, but when the stakes are high, we want to trust money, and that's true for a lot of us. So today, I want us to talk about this issue that we have that for many of us, we tend to trust money more than we trust in God. And so we're going to do that by looking at a passage of Scripture in the book of 1 Timothy. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to the New Testament. And uh, the 1 Timothy is towards the end of the New Testament. And uh, all the T's in the, in the New Testament are together, 1 and 2 Timothy, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, so they're easy to find. And uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Now 1 Timothy uh, is a book that Paul wrote. You've heard about Paul uh, some. We talk about him here a lot. Timothy was a young pastor. He had just started a new church, kind of like Freedom Fellowship in Greer, but it was in another place, and we don't know the name of it. And, um, and so he had started this new church, and, and Paul is writing Timothy, and he's giving him advice as a, as a young pastor. Here's the things you need to know. Here's the things you need to remember to be a pastor, to be a man of God. And, uh, and, and this is what it says in 1 Timothy chapter 6. I'm going to start in verse 3, and we're going to stay right here in 1 Timothy chapter 6. So open your Bibles there. You don't have to worry about flipping around today to a lot of different places. And there's some great teaching about money in this passage. It says this, If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and the godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. 
But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. There's a few things I think we can learn from, uh, from this passage, and one of them is that I want you to think about today is, is that the prosperity gospel is a lie. The prosperity gospel is a lie. Some of you have never heard that term prosperity gospel before, and you're thinking, Cliff, what does that even mean? Even if you've never heard the term, you've seen it in action. If you've, if you've ever watched TV preachers late at night, you've seen the prosperity gospel in action. Have you ever seen these guys that tell you, you know, they're going to pray over a rag, and if you send them $100, they're going to send you that rag, and then the next week your electrical bill is going to be paid, you know, and, and you're not going to know where it comes from and that kind of stuff? That's the prosperity gospel. There's a teaching out there that it, it didn't start in the last couple of years, but it is a fairly recent teaching. It, it started in the last hundred years, and it started right here in America, which is, which is uh, exactly where you would think it would have started, that says this. That if you are living like you're supposed to, if you're in God's will, then God will favor you. And the way you'll know you're favored is God will bless you with a lot of material wealth and he'll bless you with a lot of money. And you see this teaching over and over and over again. And like I said, a lot of it is by guys on TV that drive Bentleys and, and that kind of stuff. But if you look in the scripture where we just looked at it, 1 Timothy chapter 6, in verses 3 through 5, he's talking there and he's talking about these false teachers that are, that are out there teaching. And look in verse 5 what he says about these false teachers. He says that, that they are men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Right there in Scripture, it tells us that the prosperity gospel is not true, that living a godly life is not a means of getting rich, that we're supposed to live a godly life, yes, but we're not supposed to do it because we know that if we do, then we're going to have nice cars and beach houses and boats and more than our neighbors got, because that financial blessings, God might choose to bless you financially, but it's not necessarily because you're living a godly life. How many of you have seen people on TV live, that are blessed financially and they're doing everything but living a godly life? I mean, when, when, uh, when Donald Trump comes on with his You're Fired show, I mean, that joker's got more money than I'm ever going to have, and you can't tell me, oh yeah, Donald Trump is just a paragon of virtue, right? And when we think of godliness, we think of Donald Trump. But he's been blessed financially, right? And so what, just because you're blessed financially does not mean you're living the godly life God wants you to live. You may get more. God may bless you with more. But that doesn't mean that he's favored you more than someone else. And let me tell you this. And I've said this before, but it, we just need to focus on it for a minute. You are already rich because you live in America. You are richer than, than most everyone else in the world. Because of the fact of where you live, almost every one of you in here this morning, uh, you woke up in a house that you probably own. Now, some of you might rent, but most of you own, and even those of you that rent, you can afford to rent. Uh, you got in one of your two or three cars and drove to church. You had plenty of clothes to wear. You didn't have to go to bed last night and wonder where your next meal will come from. You are rich because of the fact that you live in America. And so one of the things we need to remember about money is this. 
It's not God's will for you to have more and more and more. That's not scriptural. He might bless you with more. He might want you to have more and he might bless you with it. But it's not scriptural that if I just live a godly life, I'm going to be blessed financially. The second thing that we can learn in the Timothy section is this. Be happy with what you've got because you didn't pay for it anyway. Be happy with what you've got because you didn't pay for it anyway. Look at verses 6 through 8. It says this, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. When I was in New Orleans uh, as a a seminary student, I worked on staff at a church, and I was a youth pastor there, had a great group of kids. And uh, and we moved from seminary, graduated, moved here to Greer, and I went on staff at Fairview Baptist Church here in Greer. And I'd been here a couple years, and one of the kids that was in my youth group back in New Orleans... He graduated from high school, and I got an invitation to his high school graduation. Of course, I wasn't going all the way back to New Orleans for that. But So I called him on the phone, and we were just talking, catching up. And uh, this kid had just graduated from high school, and he started to tell me about how his parents had bought him a, a new car for graduating. And I mean, I'm talking brand new, not new to him, but brand new, went to the lot. No one else had ever owned it except the Ford Motor Company. And they bought it for him gave him the keys only because he graduated from high school. He didn't put $1 down on it and gave him this new car. And I listened to him on the phone complaining to me because his parents had bought him only a Ford Escort. And he was dead serious. And he was just complaining about his parents because, well, they just bought me a Ford Escort. So I asked him, I said, well, Michael, um, what, uh, what car do you, would you have rather have them bought you? And, and he wasn't trying to be funny. And he said, oh, I don't know, I was thinking maybe like an IROC-Z, which those of you from the 80s remember, you know, as the Camaro, International Race of Champions Z28 Camaro, which was awesome, that all guys wanted and that kind of thing. And he was dead serious. And I started laughing in his face or across the phone in his face. And he said, what's so funny? I said, I said dude, your parents bought you a car that you'd have to pay anything for, and you're complaining about it because you'd rather have an IROC-Z. I said, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. He didn't really like that too much that I said that. But it was. It was stupid. And now when you hear that story, if you're like me, especially if you're a parent, you think, man, that kid is selfish. He's an idiot. My kid better not ever do that if I give my kid a car. I'm, you know, and you just hear that as a parent, and you think that's ridiculous. And maybe some of you even that are not parents yet, that are teenagers, maybe even you recognize how ridiculous that is for, for that guy to have that attitude because it's ungrateful. But, you know, we fail to, to make the connection that sometimes we can be exactly like that when it comes to all the things God's blessed us with. We can be just like that kid was to his parents, we can be like that to our Heavenly Father with all the ways that he's blessed us. I love it when it says there in verse 6 and verse 8, it says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. And then in verse 8, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Now, if I asked you to raise your hand, and I'm not, okay, don't confess. But if I asked you to raise your hand, and if you were honest raising your hand, and I said to you, hey, how many of you are completely content you're completely satisfied with your financial situation. If I ask you to raise your hand, my guess is, if you were honest, that probably less than 20 of you in here would say, yeah, man, I'm cool exactly with what I got. And I wouldn't raise my hand either. 
because I can start thinking about all the other things that I would love to have money to do and, and, and to buy and to provide people for and all that kind of stuff. And so if we're honest with ourselves, we would say, no, we're not content. We're not like verse 6 and verse 8 say, we're not content with, with uh, food and clothing. I mean, food and clothing, that's what he says we should be content with. And, and, and I love it that we live in America and, and you woke up this morning and there wasn't a one of you that said, I'm going to have to go kill a bear and make something to wear to go to church this morning. No, what did you have to decide this morning? Not if you would go out naked or not. You had to decide which one of the 800 shirts that I've got in my closet will I put on today, right? I mean, we, I threw pants away yesterday. Now, they did have big holes in the knees, but I mean, I threw them in the trash because I live in a place where I don't have to worry about clothing and I don't have to worry about food. I've never in my life, eaten a meal and got done and thought to myself, boy, I hope I can find something else to eat when it comes to be supper time or breakfast or lunchtime. My whole life I've been provided for. And in verse 7, it says this. Let me read it to you again. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. Just like that guy's parents bought him a new car, God has provided everything we need. He's given us everything we need. And, and you've paid for nothing. You've bought nothing. I have paid for nothing. I've bought nothing in my life. And you say, wait a minute, Cliff, now. You don't know, man, I work hard and I do. Yes, you do. But think about your life. You came into this world butt naked, right? That's the Old Testament term, butt naked, by the way. It's a Hebrew for it. I'll explain to you after the service. But you came into this world completely naked. Nothing to your name, Right? And, and God, the first thing God provided for you was parents. And now some of you, I know some of you didn't have as good a parents as others of you, but all of you had parents at least that fed you or you wouldn't be here today. So you had parents that fed you, that gave you shelter, and that you were raised in a home. That was the first thing God provided for you. And then as you grew up, God provided you with a brain to be able to learn skills and to get knowledge and to be able to learn a trade or to learn something where you can make a living. And then he provided the job that you have right now. He provided the place that you live. He even provided the oxygen that you can breathe so that you can survive on planet Earth. Everything we have has been provided for us by God. And yet... What do we want to do? We want to say, man, my life is, if I, only if I had this. If I only had a little bit more. Why can't I have a house at the beach like my neighbors do? Why can't my kids have a new car when they start to drive instead of an old used car when they start to drive? How come I have to, to struggle to pay my bills every month? Why do I have to have a push mower instead of a riding lawnmower? I mean, whatever it might be. And we want to complain and complain and we're ungrateful and we refuse to be content. Now, I understand that as Americans, we like to work hard and we, we compliment people that work hard and I believe in hard work. And so as we hear that, when we hear the word content, contentment is a dirty word to most of us. Because when we think of content, this is what we think. We think of contentment as having to do with being lazy. Oh, you're just content. You don't want to work hard. You don't want to get more. You don't want to try to be better. But that's not what contentment is talking about. In the scripture, contentment isn't referring to our effort. It's referring to our satisfaction with what God has provided. Now, let me say that again. It's not referring to our effort. It's referring to our satisfaction with what God has provided. Now, I'm going to talk about something real quick right here, and I don't want you to miss this. You see, 
we don't work hard to provide for ourselves, okay? Because you don't provide for yourself. No matter how hard you work, you are not providing for yourself. God is providing for you. The reason we work hard is because it says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, it says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord. The reason we work hard, the reason we give our absolute best is because that brings maximum glory to God if we do our best work. But we're not doing that to to provide for ourselves. And so that's why we can be content with what we've got because we know what we've got, we didn't pay for it anyway. What we've got has been given to us by God. Yes, you work hard, but you don't work hard to get more. You work hard to glorify Him. Does that make sense? See, it's talking about motivation here. So you should go out tomorrow and you should say, you know what, I'm going to go out this week and I'm going to give my best, absolute best 40 hours or 50 hours or 60 hours this week. I'm going to give my absolute best this week. Not because I know that at the end of the week, if I give my best, my family will have more money. But I'm going to give my absolute best this week because when I do that, that's going to bring the maximum glory to God. And people are going to know that guy works hard. That lady does her best because she wants to tell people about who Jesus is and she wants to honor him with her life or his life. That's why we do that. Not because we're providing for ourselves, because we can't. We can't provide for ourselves. As as hard as I work, And as much as I do, and I get a check from here or there or whatever, or somebody gives me money, it's not because I'm great or because I've done something. It's because God has said, hey, you need this right now, and I'm going to give it to you, and I expect you to be a good steward of it. I expect you to take care of it. Last thing I think we can learn from this passage of Scripture in 1 Timothy is this. Anyone can be guilty of loving money. Anyone can be guilty of loving money. Verses 9 and 10 of 1 Timothy 6 says this, People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. For years I read this scripture and I skimmed right over it thinking that it didn't apply to me. You know why? Because I've never been rich. Now, I am rich. I'm an American. I'm rich. We talked, but I didn't know that when I was reading this. And so I would read over this and I would think, man, yes. Amen, God. I'm glad you put that in the Bible because those rich people, they need to know about this, right? And I didn't think it applied to me one bit. And when we read this scripture, we think that it applies to some greedy athlete who's holding out for a better contract. Or you think that it applies to the person that owns your company that you work for. And we think, yeah, man, those rich people, they are greedy. And, and they love money. And, and they're evil. And they're going to hell. And it's going to be really hot down there. And they're not going to have any money to buy an air conditioner down there. And then they'll know that it was wrong to love money. Right? And it's easy for us to think that about, about someone else. But the thing that if you notice in those scriptures, it doesn't say anything about being rich to love money. In fact, it says that you don't have to be rich. In verse 9, it says that people who want to get rich, not people who are rich, people who want to get rich. And that can apply to any or all of us. You see, you don't have to have it to love it. When I was in the um, 11th grade, the brand new, at that time, it was a brand new body style for the Mustang, uh, Ford Mustang came out. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, there was this rich kid at my school who I hated because he was rich. 
and he had three names. You know, he's one of those rich kids with three names, right? Like his name was, I'm not going to say his name, but it was something Watson, something else. I mean, who goes by that but, but rich people? And so he was this rich kid with three names. And, uh, and the very first, when those things first came out, guess what he drives to school in the first week they were out? A Ford Mustang GT. I mean, it had the, it had the ground effects on the bottom of it. I mean, that sucker was awesome. And as soon as I saw that, my dislike of that guy went up, and my love of that car was, was sprouted in my heart. Now, did I ever own that Ford Mustang GT? No. But did I love it? Oh, yes, I did. I didn't have to have it to love it. I thought about it. I thought about how cool it would be to drive it around and pick up girls at Myrtle Beach, you know, or whatever else. I thought about those things by just having that car. But I never had that car. And see, with money, you don't have to have it to love it. You don't have to, to have a big bank account to be in love with money. In fact, a lot of times, uh, the, your desire for it will be more the less of it that you do have. And just desiring money can lead us to putting our faith aside. That's why it says in verse 9, people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin. Just wanting it can lead us to begin to put our faith, to put our morals aside. But what did verses 6 and 8 say of 1 Timothy 6? We're supposed to be what? Content. We're supposed to be content with what we have. We're not supposed to want more and more and more. But what happens is, if you're like me, even if you get to the point you say, God, this is enough, one day you look at the checkbook. And the balance of the checkbook is just way low. And you know you've got something coming up. And, and, or, or, or something happens and, and your kid comes home and you, and you just really, and, and it's, you're not a bad parent, you're a good parent. You just really want to provide whatever this is that you think your kid needs. It's not just something they want, but you think this will help them to do better in school or help them to be a better person. And you really want to provide it for them, but you can't afford to do it. And so all of a sudden, you, you go from, from being content to now you've let the circumstances around you determine no, I need more. I want more. And if I had more, I would be happy. And then the next step beyond that is, what will it take to get more? And I'm willing to do just about anything to get there. That's why people say things like, well, it's business. There's my Christian life and there's my business life. You can't expect to run a business on the, on the principles of Scripture, Cliff. Cliff, you've never owned a business. What do you know about business? Man, in business, we do it this way. I know the Bible says that. I do my personal finances that way, but I do my business finances this way, right? That's where that idea comes from because we start to think, well, I got to have more, so I'll put my morals aside so I can get more. But the minute we begin to sacrifice the truth of God so we can have more money, we're trusting in money more than we're trusting in God. The moment we say, I know the Bible says this, but I'm going to do the opposite of it because I'll get more money. Then we're saying, I trust more in money than I trust in God. See, wanting more and loving money can happen to all of us. I'm guilty of playing the imaginary salary game. Any of you have ever played the imaginary salary game? Some of you play the what if I won the lottery game. Now, um, I know why you play that because you buy lottery tickets. Don't act like I don't know that, all right? By the way, those of you who buy lottery tickets from now on, just give me your money, and if you want to buy a lottery ticket, maybe I'll give you everything in my wallet when you give me that money, or maybe I'll just keep your money. And it's the same as the lottery. You still get the thrill of, hey, will I get something with this or not? But, uh, so try that sometime. But I play the imaginary salary game, 
And what I do with the imaginary salary game is I come up with a number and I'll say, if I made this much money, or you know, I'll say something like, uh, let's say $25,000 more, that's a good round kind of a number. If I make $25,000 more a year, and in my imaginary salary game, I get really detailed with it. I start thinking about, okay, how would I spend that? Where, where would I put that into my, to my family? And, and the thing is, I can fool myself into thinking it's okay to want that $25,000 more a year and to fantasize about that $25,000 more a year. I'll fool myself into thinking it's okay because what I'm fantasizing about spending on is good stuff. I mean, I'm not thinking, yeah, I'll buy a bunch of crack or anything like that. I mean, what I'm thinking is, if I had $25,000 more a year, we could pay the house off this much sooner. Now, if I had $25,000 more a year, I'd put this much aside for, for my girl's college education. Now, if I had $25,000 more a year, I'd put these, you know, vinyl windows in my house or, you know, all, all these different things I would think of that I would do with that $25,000 more a year. And I get all wrapped up into it and thinking, and here's why that's so dangerous. Because when I'm living out that fantasy, what I'm, what I'm really saying is, is that if I had more money, I'd be more secure and I'd be happier. And that's a dangerous place to be. Because then I'm saying, really, I depend on money for my security and my happiness. But the truth is, if I'm not happy and secure with what God has provided me now, I'm not going to be happy and secure with what God has provided me now plus $25,000 more a year. And if I got, if tomorrow morning I walked into the office and the elders of Freedom Fellowship were there waiting for me and said, Cliff, we heard your message and we just felt led by the Spirit to pay you $25,000 more a year. If that happened tomorrow, you know what would, by the end of the week, I'd be thinking, now, if I only had $25,000 more a year, Right? Because if I'm not happy and secure with what God's provided now, no amount of money above that is going to make me happy and secure again. While we get ready to finish up, there was another quote in the Christian Atheist book that I loved and I think is so true. And it was this. He said, money is the number one competitor for our hearts. I know that's true of mine. And I would imagine it's true of yours as well. And maybe today you already know that to be true. Yeah, money is the number one competitor for my heart. Or maybe you don't even want to admit it, but let me ask you these questions. Just the very fact that I'm talking about money today, is it making you mad? Are you aggravated? Are you thinking, man, they shouldn't talk about that in church? If that's the way you're thinking right now, chances are money is the number one competitor for your heart. Or think about your giving. Are you, are you giving 10% like the Bible says? Or you, have, you don't even have any idea how much you're giving. I'm just thought, Cliff, I'm throwing some money in every day. I might be giving more than 10%. Uh, I, you're probably not. Do you have a plan for how much you're going to give? Or do you just throw the leftovers in? Well, I had a good quarter, so I'll throw some money in. Oh, that quarter was bad. No money this, this quarter, right? And so if any of those things describe you, chances are money is the number one competitor for your heart. Well, let me tell you why that's so dangerous. Now, we just read 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 10. And it talks in there about, you know, godliness is not a means to financial gain. It talks about the fact that we should be content with what we've got. It talks about the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And after it talks about all that, you know what it says in verse 11? Look at this. It says, but you, man of God, flee from all this. 
So it's talking about all this money stuff, loving money, desiring more money, all that stuff. He says, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Did you know that in the Old Testament, every single time the word flee is used in the Old Testament, it's only used in life and death situations. Every time that, that word is used, it's used in life and death situations. It's used in a situation where someone, it said someone was fleeing because if they had hung around, they were going to have their head cut off. Or it's a situation where someone said, you got to get out of here or we're going to kill you. You got to flee. And in this situation right here, Paul is telling Timothy, it is life or death. You, you are running the risk of killing yourself spiritually if you continue to want more money, to desire more money, and to love money. It will kill you spiritually. It's a life or death situation. And Paul says, flee. Get away from all of it as far as you can. Now, we're going to pray in just a minute. And uh, after we pray, we're going to, the band's going to come back up. And um, when they come back up, we're going to sing a couple more songs. We're going to take up the offering. Yes, we decided to take up the offering after the message today. All right. And, um, but we're going to take up the offering. But before we do that, I want to tell you some, a couple practical things. Because what I don't want to do is I don't want to just, you know, give you all this, hey, money, don't love it, you know, don't want it, all that stuff. Okay, see you later. I'm going to give you a couple tools that you can use to, to help you with this process of trying to figure out how to deal with your money. One is we're going to, on, set, on, on uh, February 20th, and you're going to hear way more about this later, so if you don't remember the date, don't worry about it. But on February 20th, we're going to bring a guy in. His name's Joe Sangle. He's written a book, written a couple books. But the book you might have heard of is called I Was Broke and Now I'm Not. And uh, he goes around and he helps people with financial, Christian financial principles. We're going to bring him in. It's completely free to you, all right? The church is paying to bring him in, but it's absolutely free to you, free to your friends, family members. And it's a, it's a couple-hour seminar that he does about how to prepare a budget, about how to be sure that you get your finances in order scripturally. And we're going to bring him in, and we're either going to have that right here, depending on how many people are here, or we're going to have that over at the offices. And that's going to be on a Sunday afternoon. We're going to bring him in. And that's a tool that we're going to provide for you to help you try to get this financial mess in your life worked out. The second thing I want to uh, um, just suggest to you and this is, you'll take some effort on your own. But uh, Dave Ramsey has written a book called Total Money Makeover. It's practical. It's easy to read. It's step-by-step. Step. If you read Total Money Makeover, he will give you about, a, I think it's a five- or six-step process how to get yourself out of debt and get yourself back on the road to where you can save some money, give money, live out of the fear of going bankrupt every day. And uh, so those are two tools I want to tell you about, okay? Now, I want us to pray. Before we pray... Everybody look up here and just pay real close attention. I want you to know today that I'm not teaching on money because I want something from you. I'm teaching on money because I want something for you. And I mean that. Because if we, if you're like me, we can allow ourselves to be totally immersed and completely given in to the desire for more money. And that pushes us further and further away from the cross if we live that way. But the way we need to live is to say, God, I trust you for everything. I'm going to give freely. I'm going to increase my standard of giving, not my standard of living. And that's what I want for you. I want financial freedom for you. 
as well as spiritual freedom. So I'm not teaching this today so that I can get a new truck, all right? I'm teaching this today so that all of us can learn to be financially free. Band's going to come up. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to continue to worship together. Father God, thank you for providing for us. Or the fact that I'm standing here and living and breathing is because of your gracious provision for me. Lord, I ask that in no way would anything that is said today be confusing to people, but Lord, that, that you would have made it very clear of what your desire is for each person here in regards to their finances. God, money is such a difficult thing because we've got to have it to survive today. We've got to have it to buy groceries and to, to have a place to live. But Lord, we need to trust you to provide it for us because you've promised to provide us our food. You've promised to provide us our shelter. And Lord, we need to trust you for those things. Help me, Lord, to trust you more than money. And I pray the same thing for each person that's here today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.